be with you guys. Um, <clears throat> we are studying through the book of Revelation, trying to approach it. My goal, I thought, well, we can either do like big picture framework type of stuff and take more of a, um, a systematic approach to it, or what we could do is just dig into a selection of passages, which I think will give a healthy sampling of the major themes in the book of Revelation and drill down into those and give us a, um, a basically an example of here's how to read the book of Revelation. Here's how it could be useful. My goal for all of us is hopefully that we come out of this loving the book of Revelation, trusting God's word, seeing it as useful in our lives. So that's my goal. That's how we're going to go about it. You can see here, if you got an outline there, if you don't have one, they're on chairs around you. So grab one or pick up, uh, I mean, share with your neighbor. But um, so we'll be looking at uh, the rest of chapter one. We were at the first part of chapter one last week. I want to finish up chapter one. Um, this is still kind of, this is uh, Revelation's intro, basically. It's, the, it's its own introduction to, to the book. And so we are still kind of laying the groundwork. After this week, we'll get into some more specifics, some of the real freaky stuff. Um, but uh, this week, we're still laying some groundwork. We're talking about some important context here for the book of Revelation, the, the why of the book of Revelation. Why do we have it, and why is it helpful for us? Uh, I would recommend that you guys read it, as we, even as we're going through it these next couple months. Read, read through it, and as you read through it, try to do it in big chunks, it will seem much less daunting to you if you sit down and maybe read it in just two or three sittings. Find an hour when you can sit down and just read as much of it as you can. It will make a lot more sense to you, I think, than it has when you've maybe read it in small bits and pieces. So I'm going to read this passage for us in a second, but a couple things to keep in mind first. Revelation is very imagey. It's very picturey. It's very... Uh, image-based. It wants to show us something. That is the goal. It is not so much wanting to teach us something new that the other 65 books of the Bible don't teach us. It, it more wants to illustrate that for us and drive it into our heart in a way that images drive things deep into us in, in ways that mere words sometimes don't. It wants to, and the goal really is to pull back the curtain on reality for us, to unveil what's really going on, because there are times, if you're like me, where you feel like you're in a fog, you feel a little bit uh, confused and lost and, and, sort, and maybe beat up, maybe numb when life is just kind of disorienting and some clarity would be helpful. And Revelation comes along and says, I want to show you something. Come here. Let me show you something. Let me unveil the, the, the truer, deeper reality behind what we see right in front of our faces. And, and what it pulls back the curtain on is Jesus in particular. That's what Revelation seeks to show us is Jesus, and he is front and center in this passage. He is uh, obviously, even as we read it, the subject of this passage even more clearly than in some other passages in Revelation. So, question to be thinking about as I read, just to have in the back of your mind, <clears throat> what do you think you need most this morning? Like, as you, walked in, you walk in this building with certain felt needs, certain assumptions about, here's what would be most helpful for me this morning. Here's what I would love to leave church with. Um, what do you need most this morning? And, and I ask you that question. I want you to have that question in mind for two reasons. One, because I want this to be practical. 
I think we've misread the book of Revelation if it hasn't become practical for us. But also, I think that the best way to make sense of the book of Revelation is to put ourselves uh, in the shoes of the people who first received the book of Revelation. They had a lot of needs, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But let me read this for us, and I'll pray, and then we'll take a look at it. This is God's word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask your blessing on our study of your word this morning. We thank you that it is trustworthy and true. We thank you that it is helpful uh, and uh, reliable. We ask that you would change us by the time we spend studying it this, mor- <clears throat> this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so some of you know uh, what, what a meme is. I'm guessing some of you don't. And memes, are, they're just these like internet things. It's just a picture with words put on top of it. That's all. There, I'm sure other words for pictures with words on top of it, cartoon, I don't know. Anyway, um, so, but you see these things all over the internet with just these pictures with little captions on it. And there's this one, I've seen it several different places, and it shows up over and over again because people find it amusing, I suppose. The picture is, it looks like it's from some um, cheaply made 1960s Sunday school curriculum, and uh, it's a picture of this huge muscular lion coming up onto the floor of the Ro- of a Roman Colosseum, and uh, another lion coming up behind him, this, this huge, huge figure. The lion is the main uh, thing in the picture. And then uh, off in the corner of the picture, in the floor of the Colosseum, is a group of people who, it's clear, Christians, huddled together as these lions approach them. And the words, the caption on this meme says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Some of you recognize those words. They're from a very, very popular uh, 
for, for a lot of decades, evangelistic tool called the Four Spiritual Laws, which God has used in fantastic ways. And, and I'm not disparaging the Four Spiritual Laws right now. But these are, these are familiar words to a whole lot of Christians. When we hear those words, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, we have a very specific picture of what that means, don't we? Uh, I do. I have a particular image of what that's supposed to, what that wonderful life is supposed to look like. The thing is, the people that John is writing to, the first recipients of the book of Revelation, um, which are these churches listed in verse 11 here, places in what is modern-day Turkey, it was then part of the Roman Empire, they were facing that kind of wonderful life. Uh, where it was a very real possibility that they were headed to a Roman Colosseum. There's a very real possibility that they or either themselves or family or pastors or friends would be facing that kind of wonderful life. Uh, some important background for us to understand the book of Revelation. John's writing in about 96 AD. So about 30 years before that, there was a guy named Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. He was emperor of the Roman Empire. To say that Nero didn't like Christians, of course, would be a Quite an understatement. He, was, he systematically got rid of as many Christians as he could, uh, whether that would be at the Colosseum, or he was also known for uh, pouring hot tar on these Christians and impaling them and lighting his garden parties with their bodies. Uh, Nero himself killed or had killed almost all of the major characters in the New Testament. He was uh, responsible, we, we believe, responsible for the deaths of Peter and Paul and Timothy and a whole bunch of others. So that was Nero. That was 30 years before John's writing. And then things actually got worse, if that's believable. A guy came after Nero called Vespasian. He killed even more Christians. And then after Vespasian, things got even worse. 92 AD, four years before John's writing. Four years so four years ago was uh, 2013. Just for so four years. That's it. Uh, and the emperor named Domitian comes to the throne, and he was psychotic. He was nuts. He changed. The, he actually changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. That was the name he chose for it. Um, and he was so paranoid that somebody was going to take over the throne that he demanded that the emperor be worshipped by every Roman citizen. He made it a law that you had to go into these temples and take a pinch of incense, throw it on the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. It was required, which for most of the Romans was, was no big deal. What's one more god among the pantheon? It was sort of like, sure, yeah, we can do that. Add, add Caesar to the list. That's fine. For Christians, that, that was kind of, kind of a no-go. Uh, Christians say Jesus is Lord. Christians say there is but one Lord, and his name is Jesus the Christ. Domitian had, uh, scholars estimate, 40,000 Christians killed during his reign. So four years later, John, the Apostle John, is on an island called Patmos. We read that in verse 9, which is uh, it's an island prison which has a rock quarry on it, so he was forced labor on this rock quarry. Why he was exiled and not killed, like a lot of the other influential Christians, we don't know. But he is, he's kept alive, and he's on this island prison, and he's writing to these people, 
to these people who've lost family and pastors and friends and neighbors and whose own lives are in serious danger. And, he, uh, and they are in danger just because they say Jesus is Lord. What do you say? You're writing to these people. Thankfully, he didn't have to come up with much. He's simply writing what he saw. But what do you say? What would actually be helpful? <clears throat> um, some of you, like, right, you hear that and you're like, that is extreme. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and I in no way want to minimize the, the hugeness of what these brothers and sisters were going through, especially compared to uh, the comfort that we enjoy here in modern-day United States of America. But maybe most days you feel like the gospel is this cozy thing that makes you if, that feels really good, that is really, really helpful. Um, and, uh, and, but most days you really don't feel like you need any deep comfort, but there has to be some kind of deep comfort from the gospel. There has to be something that the gospel says to those of us who do need real deep comfort and, and who need for the gospel to not just be meaningless, fluffy, happy stuff. If the gospel has nothing to say to that, to these hard situations, then really it's a waste of time. For those of us who need deep comfort, we are given scripture. Part of that that God has given to us is the book of Revelation. How is this helpful? How does, how, how and how does Revelation help those of us who need deep comfort? Well, it helps us by showing us Jesus. That's the subject. That's the image. That's where John starts. That's where this vision starts. Verse 9. John says, uh, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. That's a word that gets a lot of people freaked out. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled. When's this tribulation? What is this tribulation? It sounds kind of spooky. If we will just hear what John is saying. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Um, he is not talking about some obscure, mysterious future event that involves like clouds and people disappearing and stuff like that. The, he is talking about a present reality. I presently am a partner with you in this. I am writing to you not to get you ready for the tribulation. I am writing to you because you are in the tribulation. I'm assuming that's me making the scratchy noise, but I don't know what to do about it. Um, I am writing to you not to get you ready for this future tribulation. I'm writing to you because you are in it, and I'm in it with you. And the same is true for us. Uh, John's writing to people. Here's who he's writing to. He's writing to people who are suffering, and he's writing to people who are struggling through life in a fallen world. The people who are struggling with life in a world where redemption is real, where Jesus really is risen, where Jesus really is victorious, and yet at the same time the world is full of injustice and violence and corruption. And it's also a world where in our own lives, we, we, our own lives are marked with struggle, uh, with inconsistency, with hard relationships, with like a strange cocktail of um, <clears throat> tears and numbness and misinformed self-confidence, uh, which usually circles back around to tears. And John says, I'm writing to you not to get you ready 
for the tribulation. I'm writing to you because you are in it right now, and I'm in it with you. So what do you say? What do you think, this, the question I asked at the beginning, what do you feel like you need most this morning? What is the most concrete need that you have? What God says here is whatever else might be going on in your life, which is significant, what you need most, what would be most concretely helpful to you would be to see Jesus, to have Jesus and who he is unveiled to you. Because that's what you pray too. I think if you're a Christian, you know this instinctively. Haven't you prayed at some point in your life, Jesus, will you just show yourself to me? Will you please make yourself clear? I don't get what's going on. Will you make yourself clear? Why is that our instinctive prayer? It's because what we need isn't just like good advice. We know that. We also know that like what we most fundamentally need isn't just some more money or an easygoing vacation or easier relationships. We need at rock bottom to see Jesus. So that's, uh, that's our, our second point here. What, what's this vision? What is the content of this vision that we're given? Uh, verse 12. <clears throat> he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. <clears throat> one like a son of man. You hear that, and you're like, it, it sort of sounds like uh, I saw someone who kind of looks like a regular person. Right? That's what I think it... I've always thought it sounded like that. Son of man, that's, that's a human. Um, but this statement is actually, it's loaded, loaded, loaded with other uh, echoes from other parts of the Bible, which one of the reasons we find Revelation hard, if you've read through Revelation and found yourself lost, one of the reasons we find it hard is because it is chock full of references to the Old Testament. Um, there are how many, uh, 404 verses in the book of Revelation. It's broken down into verses, right? And 404 of them, there's an estimated 600 plus allusions to Old Testament passages there. So that's like one and a half per verse, okay? So one of the reasons we have a hard time with the book of Revelation is because we have a hard time with our Old Testament because we don't read it and we don't know it. Uh, but th- this, this term, one like a son of man, is loaded with echoes from other parts of the Bible. It was the way Jesus most frequently referred to himself. And you know that it was loaded because people were not okay with Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. People got really mad and tried to kill him and then did kill him. Um, and the reason people got so mad at Jesus for using this term for himself, the Son of Man, is because it's not just a term, it's a character. It's a specific character from the Old Testament. We see him several places, but especially in the prophecy of Daniel. This is chapter 7 of verse Daniel. Everybody stops reading Daniel before this part, by the way. We all like Daniel up until a point, and then we're like, well, I give up. So, chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel sees a vision of God in all of his radiant and glorious splendor and all of his unmitigated power. And he says, the Ancient of Days, which is a title given to God, right? He's older than the calendars go. He's older than the stars. He's older than the galaxies. The Ancient of Days took his seat on his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hairs of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Do you hear the echoes of what we just read? And then he says, And behold, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given all authority and all glory forever and ever. You can tell why people got upset when Jesus said, referred to himself as the Son of Man. And if you're paying attention, and if you know your Old Testament, if you know your Daniel, and you're hearing this passage in Revelation, you're supposed to probably think, hear this and think, like, hold on. Are you describing the Ancient of Days, or are you describing the Son of Man? Like you just said, like, like hair as white as wool and, all, and fire, but he's the son of man. Is this the son of man or is this the ancient of days? I think you're supposed to say exactly. Yes. You're catching on. They are one and the same. Here's what John's vision of Jesus is saying to us. It's saying if you could pull back the curtain on reality, if you could unveil all of the stuff right in front of you, what you would see is Jesus. And when you see Jesus, what you will see is that he has all power, that he has all authority forever. And all rulers, all authorities, Domitian, Nero, Vespasian, any of them, everything that appears so powerful and so threatening to you, all of it is subject to him. So for the first readers, that's Nero, that's Domitian. It's a, and they are, he says, presently, right now, bowing down to Jesus. They are subject to him. He, this is not out of Jesus' control. Which means, for us, right, us too, all of those things that appear threatening, um, the diagnoses, the lost jobs, the, the relationships, the future, the depression, the anxiety, all of it, all the things that are threatening all the things that feel like they threaten our security as a status, uh, and our status as a child of God. All of the things that threaten the, the wonderful plan that we think that God has for us. All of it is subject to Jesus. It all bows down to him. It's not out of his control. What's up? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. Oh, batteries, huh? So electricity is required for things... I don't know, but uh, batter, Duracell, that's the, that's the trick. Yeah, what are those other ones? Mm-mm-mm. Those are the Duracell ones with the little bit of green on it, which I don't know what it means, but I think it means they're better. Sweet, thanks. Hey, now I'm loud again. Thanks, Nate. Oh, it's all right. It's, I was wondering if it was the whole fry didn't shave thing, just scratching on the mic, but I keep keep trying to move it. What do you say? Yeah? Yeah, I think I'm a pretty loud fella. All right. Hey, I can lose this. All right feel so free okay and there's no fear of electrocution too in the when you anyway it's not like a big fear of mine but it it runs through your head um there's okay bottom line here's the point john this vision that is given to john would love to convince us of jesus does not aspire to be king 
That is not his aspiration. He is king presently over everything. It is a present reality. Although it is right now not fully manifest, it is not fully visible to us. There are a whole lot of things that we see and we say, that does not look like Jesus is in control. It does not look like he uh, is, is in the driver's seat. But he is already right now king. This is uh, the, the term that you'll hear used sometimes for this is the already but not yet. This is the age in which we live is where redemption is fully accomplished. It's 100% already accomplished. is not yet fully seen in our present reality. And there's this friction. And we'll dig into that a lot more as Revelation goes on. <clears throat> okay, so he's king. There's more than that too, though. Look at, how, look at the physical description here of the Son of Man, the King, the Almighty One forever and ever. Uh, he says, one like a Son of Man, verse 13, halfway through. He's, here's what he looked like. But remember, this is not so much like physically what he looks like. The goal is to tell us what he is like. This is picture What is he like? Here's what he is like. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Beautiful. We also see out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. There's a ton here. This is rich, rich, rich with Old Testament Imagery, a lot of Daniel, a lot of Ezekiel. There's some Leviticus, some Exodus, I would argue. Um, Bottom line, we'll we'll unpack a lot of these images later too. That's why I'm I'm gonna skip over a little bit. But here's what this is a picture of absolute purity. You see that with the whiteness? I think that's clear, even if you don't catch the echoes. A picture of purity, absolute righteousness, complete holiness, truth. Powerful truth in a sword which proceeds from his mouth. His power is in his word. He needs no weapons. Truth. Okay, and you're like, all right, I've got to go to work tomorrow, though. How does this help me? How does this help the first readers? Well, how, okay, that's, that's cool. Uh, so what? Look at verse 17. Here's the helpfulness of, of this vision. This is third point here. Um, Verse 17, when I saw him, John speaking, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The glory, the power, the radiance of Jesus Christ leaves John completely helpless, completely undone. He stops in his tracks. He feels completely exposed. And remember who John is. This is one of Jesus's closest friends. He knew Jesus in his earthly life probably as well as anybody, maybe better than anybody. He referred to himself over and over as the disciple who Jesus loved. We get a picture of him leaning against Jesus' chest while they're enjoying their last supper together before Jesus is crucified. Okay? They had an intimate friendship, and he is terrified when he sees him. He's undone at the pure power and radiance and glory and perfection. How does that help us? 
How does that help the first readers? How does that help us when, when we're scared, when we're hurting, when we're anxious, when the future seems ex- very, very much in doubt? How does a picture of Jesus in raw, unmitigated power actually help us? Because that's not the picture we usually think of, right? With Jesus, we think, we think friendly and chummy and cheery and, uh, and shepherd, like these shepherd images and, sweet, and sweetness and tenderness, which is all true. And, but what we get is power here. How does that offer us any kind of comfort? <clears throat> There's, um, I'll illustrate with this. A uh, guy named Mark, Marcus Luttrell, he was a Navy SEAL. He uh, wrote, his, wrote a book called Lone Survivor. He was part of SEAL Team 10. It was made into a movie too. Um, a part of SEAL Team 10, he was the only survivor of a mission in Afghanistan uh, he was captured. So the rest of his team was killed. He was captured. And by the time he was rescued, he had lost 40 pounds. Who knows how many pints of blood. He had broken three vertebrae. He had broken his wrist. His nose was out of place. And when he was rescued, he was taken to a medical facility. And, and he writes this. He says, The morphine was not as good as the opium I'd been given. Everything hurt. I was met formally by the SEAL skipper, Commander Kent Pirro, who was accompanied by my doctor. He came with me in the van, Commander Pirro did, a very high-ranking SEAL officer who had always remembered my first name ever since the day we first met. He sat beside me, gripping my arm, asking me how I was. I recall telling him, yes, sir, I'm fine. But then I heard him say, Marcus, and he shook his head, And I noticed this immensely tough character, my boss's boss, had tears streaming down his face, tears of relief. It's funny, but it was the first time in in so long that I'd been with someone who really cared about me. And I found it overwhelming. And I broke down right there in the van, and when I pulled myself together, Commander Pirro was asking me if there was anything I needed, because no matter what it was, he would get it. I don't know Commander Pirro, but he's pretty awesome, right? Uh, I like him. I want him to be my friend. Because, look, Marcus Luttrell had just shown that he is incredibly tough. First of all, he's a Navy SEAL. You don't get to be a Navy SEAL without being crazy tough. Commander Pirro was a commander of Navy SEALs. He's as tough as tough gets. But what makes you love him is when he reaches out And he feels for him and is concerned for him. And he says, if there is anything you need, I will get it. And I imagine that's just about anything. I imagine Commander Pirro could pretty much walk through walls in the Pentagon. Jesus says, verse 17, Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm in control. And that's not all. Verse 12, I think this is beautiful. John had heard this voice, this powerful, glorious, trumpet-like voice, and it says he turns around to see who was speaking And the first thing he sees 
seven golden lampstands. Before we even hear anything about who was talking, he says, I turned to see, and what I saw was seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them was this one like a son of man. The seven golden lampstands we see in verse 20 are the seven churches. Seven's a number. Numbers are important. In the book of Revelation, seven will come up over and over again. It's the number of completeness, divine completeness. So in other words, these seven churches, this is all of the churches, all of my people. Here's the point. Jesus is in the midst of them. He turns to see this voice, and the first thing he sees is the Son of Man in the midst of all of his people, 100% of them. This is Jesus saying, I am with you. I am in your midst. I am here, and you can fear not, because I have all of the control. So back to the question, how does this help us? How does a picture of Jesus in raw, unmitigated, world-controlling power, how does that help us? It's because the raw, unmitigated power is accompanied by a compassionate and loving hand. It is accompanied by an intimate presence with us. The one that says, I am right here, I am with you, I am beside you, and if there is anything you need, I will get it for you. So just to circle back around, I asked, what do you need most this morning? Like, what do you actually think you need most this morning? Maybe some of us need some rest. Some of you just need a break. Some of you just need a a little let up on the gas pedal from everything in your life. Some of you need physical healing. Some of you need some security or direction. Some of you need peace in a particular relationship, whether it's a kid or a spouse or a friend. Um, Some of you just need to, you're just weary. I don't know what it is. Might I suggest for you, though, that the most helpful thing for you to see might be Jesus in all of his power and all of his control unveiled to you and to know his presence with you. That's where Revelation starts. I think it starts there on purpose. Um, Why don't I pray for us, and then I'll tell you a little more about where we'll go going forward. Father, we do thank you. We really, really need to know your presence with us. There are some of us here this morning who it was our prayer, even already this morning, Jesus, will you make yourself clear to me? Because it's so hard to see what you're doing sometimes. And it just hurts a lot of the time. Would you please make yourself clear to us? Would you convince us that really any start we make towards fixing our surface level problems will not get very far outside of a clearer picture of you and your control? And I pray that the glory and the power of Jesus might be sweeter and more beautiful to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so going forward, here's the plan going forward. Is uh, Actually, next week we're going to take a break from the book of Revelation because I'm going to be gone with students for a retreat. Um, and then where John goes after this, there's, um, well, Jesus sends letters to these seven churches, which are sweet and beautiful and amazing. Brad actually preached on these a few years. How many years ago? It probably was longer than I think. It feels like a year and a half, but it was probably like five. I don't know. I don't Yeah, 
plenty, some years. Maybe they're still online. I don't know. You should look those up. But because Brad did it, maybe a lot of you weren't even here a few years ago. But look those up or just read through them at least. Also, last summer at All Saints, I preached through chapter 4 and chapter 5 which are like key crucial parts of the book of Revelation. But since we just covered those, what I feel like was yesterday, it was this past summer, I'm going to skip past those. We'll pick up in chapter 6, starting week after next, when we come back to the book of Revelation. And uh, you can find the recordings online for chapters 4 and 5, if you want to be caught up. This is the throne room scene, and it's it's amazing. Um, Bottom line, well, I'll summarize what we missed when we come back. But we are going to pick up... In chapter 6, with some of the stuff that I'm guessing some of you guys want really were like eager to hear about. Chapter 6, like these seven seals start breaking, and we get the four horsemen of the apocalypse and stuff like that. You know. So that's where we're going, and we'll pick up there uh, in a week and a half. If you want, I feel like there was something else I was going to say. Um, oh, make sure that you uh, stick around after.